0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Chapter 4 of King and Baronage, A.D. 1135-1327 by William Holden Hutton this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Reign of John, 1199 to 1216. His generous brother's last words had given John a claim to the homage of the barons. The young Arthur, his brother Geoffrey's son, dwelt with his mother Constance in Brittany, where she had tried to keep up the local independence And refused to follow the rule of the Angevin house. But no one spoke for Arthur, and England recognized John as his brother's heir. On Ascension Day, he was crowned at Westminster, when it is said that Archbishop Hubert Walter solemnly repeated the old constitutional formula that the English crown was elective, and said that the new king was chosen because he was the strongest of the royal house. Thus, it was claimed that the new feudal idea of hereditary right did not affect the crown. The French kings, in crowning their sons in their lifetime, had tried to provide for their succession and had so gradually established the rule. But in England, it was not so, and men saw that John owed his crown to election and not to his inherent right. At his crowning, John made the three ancient promises. To protect the church, to do justice to all men, and to make good laws. Never were oaths more readily made and more lightly broken. He was treacherous beyond any of his house, who had never held very fast by their honor or their creed. And in this he stood in marked contrast to Richard, who, in his later years at least, had learnt something of the chivalry which belonged to the true knight. In the indulgence of his passions, John was utterly unrestrained. He had not his brother's bravery or his father's wisdom. He was mean as well as cruel, and could neither keep a friend nor withstand a foe. Gerald of Berry, who had been his tutor and from the first had noted the vices of his character, came at length to declare him the worst of all the tyrants of history. Hell itself, said another, is defiled by the presence of John. He was, in fact, the worst of his race. For centuries the house of Anjou had borne a terrible name. Men said they came of a race of devils, and strange legends grew up about the origin of their line. In John all the vices of the house, through the centuries of its ruthless course, seemed to unite." yet he was indolent even in his viciousness, and readily passed from the extreme of recklessness to the depth of apathy. Men had hated and feared his forefathers, him they hated and despised. When he had let his great heritage slip from him, an indignant poet of the South cried out upon his slackness, I will make a sharp-edged verse, which I will send to the English king to cover him with shame, which he ought to feel when he remembers his father's and thinks how he has left Turenne and Poitou to the King Philip. All Guienne mourns for Richard, who spared no treasure in its defense. But this man has no feeling. He loves jousts and huntings, to have hounds and hawks, to drag on a life without honor, and see himself plundered without resistance. Yet John began with every good prospect the firm administration of his father still endured and was worked by men capable and honest. His aged mother, who knew the politics of Europe and had all the skill of a great diplomatist, was ready to serve him, as she had served Richard with all her strength and all her wit. Philip of France, though he might be his most dangerous foe, had hitherto been his pledged friend. William the Scottish king came to him and did homage, Ireland and Wales were undisturbed. He made a formal peace with France and gave his niece, Blanche of Castile, in marriage to Louis, King Philip's son. It seemed as if John was secure and Arthur had no friends. But within the year all was changed, and changed through John's folly. He had married Hawissa, the heiress of the rich earldom of Gloucester, and through her had been a great english baron before he was king now he divorced her and took isabel of angoulême who was pledged to hugh count of la marche hugh though he was john's vassal carried his grievance to king philip and the complaints of constance of brittany joining with his wrongs induced the french monarch to make war on john alleging as his causes belly Arthur's rights to his late uncle's dominions, and the robbery of Hugh's promised bride. In 1202 the war broke out in Poitou. Arthur was joined by many rebellious barons. Philip had summoned John to answer in his court to the charges that his vassals made against him, and when he would not come, declared his lands forfeited. For a while there was great danger. Queen Eleanor was nearly captured by Arthur in the castle of Mirabel, but John, by a rapid march and a clever night onset, freed his mother and took Arthur prisoner. Within a year, in April 1203, Arthur died in prison, slain men said by John's own hand. From this moment, the Norman barons, having no other claimant to put forward when they wished to avenge their grievances on the Angevin ruler, turned to France and everywhere men began to abandon John, whom they regarded as a murderer. Philip summoned him to stand his trial, but he would not come, and sentence of forfeiture of all his French fiefs was pronounced. The barons rose, and the French army poured into Normandy, but John sat carelessly feasting at Rouen, and did not raise a hand to defend himself. For a year Chateau-Gaillard held out, but at last it yielded when all its stores were spent. It had gallantly withstood the whole military power of the French crown. John himself had seemed for a while to be exerting himself for its relief. He sent a flotilla of small ships, manned it was said by pirates, up the Seine to break the blockade, while at the same time William the Marshal led three hundred knights along the left bank of the river. But a delay occurred which ruined the plan, and Philip took advantage of the failure to draw still nearer to the castle. John left his gallant men to their fate, but they still held out month after month. At last, on March 6, 1204, a breach was made in the wall, and the French captured the great fortress that had been so gallantly defended. On March 21, Queen Eleanor died. John stayed in England and by the summer all his lands in north and central France had slipped from him. All the Norman duchy was lost except the Channel Islands, which England holds today as the sole remnant of the heritage of William the Conqueror. All Anjou, Touraine, men were gone too, and the overlordship of Brittany. Of all the French lands which his father had ruled, John retained only part of his mother's duchy of Aquitaine and all was lost by mere sloth for there was still much to have held the great angevin empire together the norman barons were really much more closely linked to england than to france many of them had estates on both sides of the channel and all had traditional feuds with their french neighbours The Norman towns, too, were better off under the English kings, and all the sentiments of past history for three centuries taught hostility to the house of Capet. The loss of Normandy had great effects on English history. Our kings were now driven to reside more in their island realm, and thus were brought more constantly with their virtues and their crimes before the English people, who soon came to call them, as they had never done before, to account for their deeds. A national feeling, too, began to rise, a hatred of foreigners, which began with a hatred of the foreign court, and might be, as the king ruled well or ill, against him or in his favor. And as this feeling rose, the nation began also to realize its own unity. Norman and English were already so mixed in race that men could no longer distinguish the men of either blood, Now this fact became evident in the action of the baronial party. The barons, half English in blood, came to see that they were all English in duties, in claims, and in feeling. They began to ask as the folk had asked under the stern rule of the Normans for the good laws of the old English kings. In 1205 died the able archbishop Hubert Walter, who had kept the king at peace with the church, In 1206 John made a slight effort to win back his foreign lands, but he easily agreed to a truce by which he gave up all his northern heritage. He seemed to have lost all sense of his position. When he heard of his great minister's death, he said, Now for the first time I am truly king of England. It was true in a sense in which he did not mean it. The administration which his father had set up and through which the Angevin rule over England had so long been carried out, had now at last broken down. The faithful servants of the great king were dead, and most of those trained in their school had passed away. John, it seemed, must be his own minister. Left now to face his English subjects, John soon began to meet the consequences of his folly and his crimes. His first quarrel was with the church. The monks of Canterbury chose their sub-prior Reginald to succeed Hubert as archbishop without taking the king's pleasure, and sent him off to Rome to receive the pope's sanction. John, however, had determined that a minister of his own, John de Grey, bishop of Norwich, should be primate, and forced the monks in a new election to choose him. The bishops of the province of Canterbury also claimed to elect, and all parties appealed to Rome. The great Pope, Innocent III, would confirm none of these claims. He declared both elections void, and then the Canterbury monks at Rome, who had full power to act for all their fellows, chose under his direction a great scholar and a cardinal then at Rome, Stephen Langton, the Englishman of all others most worthy of the place. He was consecrated by the Pope himself, June 17th, 1207. John would have been wise if he had accepted what had been done, but he refused to receive Langton and stood out against the Pope's warnings. Innocent was a man of high principle and of strong will, astute and ingenious, and unflinching in doing what he believed to be his duty. It was not likely that he would yield to a man such as John. On March 23, 1208, he laid England under an interdict. By this the churches were closed, though prayers might be said and sermons preached in the churchyards. The sacraments of marriage, extreme unction, and the Eucharist were forbidden, though many monasteries were exempt from this general rule. Burials were not allowed in churchyards, and baptism might only be performed in private. This was felt then to be a severe affliction to the whole land, though at the present day some Protestant bodies voluntarily restrict their worship within much the same limits. John treated the interdict with contempt, and seized the lands and goods of the clergy who obeyed it. He thus was able to refrain from taxation, and the baronage as yet showed no sign of opposition to his will, but he did not know the man with whom he had to deal. Innocent threatened that he would excommunicate him for his defiance. Still, he persisted, and he drove most of the bishops from the land. He continued to rob the clergy, and to rob and persecute the Jews. He made his barons give him hostages for their loyalty, and then he made the King of Scots do homage anew. In 1210, he went to Ireland and brought to submission the warring parties of the English Pale. But at last the Pope's vengeance fell. When John had again refused to receive the Archbishop, Pandolf, the Pope's special envoy, warned him in presence of the earls and barons of England of the consequences of his act and of the further excommunication that would follow. What more? asked the King scornfully. We have absolved, said Pandolf, Every earl, baron, knight, freeman, and every clerk and layman, and every Christian man in all your land, from their fealty and homage to you. The Pope, a few months later, gave to Philip of France a commission to execute this sentence of deposition. John passed from defiance to the extremity of terror. One Peter of Wakefield had prophesied that by Ascension Day he should have lost his crown and everything seemed to point to the fulfillment of the prophecy. The terrors of excommunication, too, were not without effect. John knew that he could not depend upon his own men, and he knew, too, the strength and the astuteness of the great King Philip. On all sides there were signs of discontent, though many of the barons still stood by him. But his own heart failed, and on May thirteenth, 1213, he made complete submission to the Pope— agreed to recall all the bishops, and surrendered his kingdom to receive it again as a fief of the Roman see with the yearly tribute of one thousand marks. No submission so abject was ever made by an English king. Yet, at the moment, it seemed to promise John a complete triumph over his foes. He was in league with the emperor Otto, who was the son of his sister Matilda and with the Counts of Flanders and Boulogne against Philip of France. His ships under his natural brother William Longsort, Earl of Salisbury, destroyed the French fleet, and he himself prepared for a great expedition against France. Stephen Langton came to England as Archbishop of Canterbury and released the king from his excommunication. But now the barons refused to move, they had come to see that they had no interest in the king's foreign wars, and they began too to call for the old law and the justice of Henry I. John tried in vain to coerce the stout barons of the north, and meanwhile in a council at St. Albans on August 4, 1213, where besides the barons there were present men from all the townships on the royal demesne, Geoffrey Fitzpeter, the justiciar, himself one of the ministers of Henry II, undertook that the laws of Henry I should be restored. It was clear that the whole land felt its concern in the great question between king and baronage. A council was summoned to meet at Oxford, at which not only the feudal tenants were to be present, but also four discreet men from each shire. Thus the custom of representation which had long obtained in the shire court, to which there came four men, and the reeve from each township, was now extended to the national council itself. At the same time Stephen Langton gathered a council at St. Paul's, and took the chief barons apart, saying, Ye know how, when I absolved the king, I made him swear that he would destroy evil rule, and cause the good laws of King Edward to be observed. There is now found a charter of King Henry I, by which you can, if you will, restore the lost liberties of the land." So they demanded that John should rule on the lines of that great declaration of the king's justice, the coronation charter of his great-grandfather. Discontent had forced a voice and a basis for its demands. The justiciar might have kept the peace, but he died in October, and then John found himself face to face with the barons who knew their own strength and their aims. There was, however, a pause. John crossed to Poitou in February 1214. On July 27th, some of the English under the Earl of Salisbury, with the Emperor's troops and the Flemings, were utterly defeated at Bouvines, near the French northern frontier, and the Count of Flanders and the Earl of Salisbury were taken. It was a crushing blow. The Great Alliance was broken up, and as John was also defeated in Poitou, Philip was able to force a truce upon him and remained not only supreme in France, but the greatest of European monarchs. The news of this defeat emboldened the English barons to demand the redress of their grievances. The archbishop was now their leader, and when John returned, he dare not reject their request. He tried to separate them by promising to the church freedom of election to all bishoprics and abbeys, which no other king save Stephen had allowed, and then appealed to the Pope to help him. Innocent took his side, but the archbishop and the barons presented articles of their demands, in which they sought for justice in all matters where they had been wronged, and for a due observance of the laws and restraint of the royal officers. John in a passion refused, the barons at once got together an army and made Robert Fitzwalter their head as Marshal of the Host of God and Holy Church. They had with them the citizens of London, whom the King had oppressed, and the people and the Church also recognized in them the champions of the liberties of the whole land. John found it impossible to resist. On June fifteenth at Runnymede, on the Thames near Windsor, he met the barons and signed Magna Carta, the Great Charter of the Liberties of England. The Charter was a statement of the rights of all classes. The Church was allowed her freedom to elect, and all other lawful rights. The rights of the King over his tenants and of the barons over their men were restricted. No scutage or other like tax was to be levied, save by the consent of the Great Council of Bishops and Barons. The rights of London were assured. The court of common pleas, ordinary suits between subjects, was no longer to follow the king, but to be held in a fixed place. The king's foreign mercenaries were to be banished, and the great principles of liberty were asserted in words which became famous. No free man was to be taken, imprisoned, deprived of his land, banished, or in any way hurt, save by the judgment of his peers, equals, or the law of the land, No man was to be fined, save according to the measure of his offence, and so as to leave him his means of earning his living. And to no man, the king promised, would he sell, delay, or deny justice. Twenty-five barons were chosen to see that this charter was carried out, and were allowed to make war on the king, save only that they might not seize his person or that of his wife and children, if he did not keep his word." Thus all that Henry II had done to strengthen the royal power was undone, and the English kings had now to give account to a people whose rights were known and admitted by the laws. Yet there was little, if anything, that was definitely new in Magna Carta. It was of a peace with all past recognitions of right. It followed the old English laws and the charter of Henry I. The Church of England had always been considered free, and barons had always been protected by the legal rights of their feudal position. The vilains had always had their means of earning a living outside the claims of the royal tax-gatherers. But these rights were such as a strong king could ignore, and not till John's day had there arisen an united party of all classes that could make the king do right. The great council of the realm gained little in theory that it had not possessed before. Kings had always taken its consent when they came to lay taxes on the nation, and the barons had had their right of summons rarely, if ever, contested. The charter, indeed, was very much more of a restatement than an alteration of English law and custom, but its real importance lay in the fact that it gave a rallying cry to all those who for the future should oppose misrule in a king. Men appealed for many centuries to the great charter of liberties of King John. But all this was not apparent at first. The Charter seemed only the starting point of new strife. King and Baron had sworn to it, but oaths were as easily broken as they were made. John never intended to keep his word. He at once asked the Pope to absolve him from it, and prepared by hiring more foreign troops to fight when the Barons should discover his treachery. The Pope hastily declared the Charter illegal, Summoned Langton to Rome and excommunicated the barons. Then both parties prepared for war. John harried the north and attacked Alexander, the young king of Scots who had occupied Northumberland. The barons chose the Earl of Essex, who had married John's divorced wife, for their leader, and asked Louis of France, King Philip's son, who had married John's niece, to take the English crown. Till the French landed, John carried all before him. Only London resisted his attack. When Louis landed, May 21, 1216, the barons rallied round him. Even the Earl of Salisbury deserted his brother, and all men seemed to look to the French princess, their only savior from the tyranny and treachery of the king. Louis was everywhere successful. In three months he was master of the southwest and north of England. Only a few of the castles held out for the king— Dover and Windsor, Newark, Nottingham, Lincoln, and Barnard Castle, and Alexander, King of Scots, marched down from the north and did homage to Louis at Canterbury. Meanwhile John moved here and there, burning and slaughtering, but was gradually driven north. As he was turning again to meet his foes, his baggage was swept away by the sudden incoming of a high tide as he passed by the wash, and at Swinehead he was seized with illness, which men said was due to poison. He reached Newark on October 16th, and there he died three days later, October 19th, 1216, commending his little son to the care of the new Pope Honorius the third, He was buried in Worcester Cathedral. No man, even among his own trusted servants, regretted him. England had never been ruled by so bad a man or so bad a king, There was a general feeling of thankfulness and relief when the news of his sudden death spread over the land. End of chapter 4